and Ruth went down to the threshing floor just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lay down at the end of the heap of grain. Then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And at midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? She said, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And Boaz said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter, for you have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after younger men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear, for I will do for you everything that you desire. For all of my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My best friend in high school, Jay, died in a scuba diving accident in my junior year of high school. Jay was completely unchurched, yet he started trying out church in the 10th grade. And after a year of Jay trying out church, he told me, a pagan still, words that I will never forget. Do you want to know the words that Jay spoke over me? Well, you'll have to wait till the end of the sermon. What really happened on that threshing floor? Ruth chapter three, what happened on that threshing floor? People have got all kinds of opinions about what happened on that threshing floor in chapter three with Ruth and Boaz. We've been journeying through the book of Ruth. We've seen that Ruth is really in many ways an allegory, an allegory for the whole of our Christian life. The picture of what does it look like for a person to come to know their Redeemer, Jesus. As we've seen last week and the week before, it begins, our journey begins in a place of hardship. It begins in Moab. It begins in sin and brokenness and need. And yet, by God's amazing grace and sovereign mysterious ability to turn small events together through what I would call happenstance, we find ourselves in our Redeemer's field, just like Ruth. We meet the Lord. We meet our Redeemer. And what we find when we meet him is a hospitality that we've never known. We're greeted and accepted and embraced in a way that you could never even imagine. We're foreigners, we're Moabites, we have no rights to be there, and yet our Redeemer welcomes us and shows us a kind of steadfast love that is unbelievable. And yet in chapter 3 here now, we come to really, I think, the, the, the mountain peak of this text And yet, some would say, based on their interpretations of Ruth chapter 3, that we should have a R-rated or at least a PG-13, you know, notice on the front of the bulletin here saying, you know, watch out, there's some pretty hot and heavy stuff going on here in Ruth chapter 3. And the reason people interpret it that way, and I'm going to totally refute that today, by the way. I'm going to defend Ruth and Boaz as honorable on the threshing floor. But just where this comes from 
is that in verse 6, when we hear that Ruth is going down to the threshing floor, it's true that when you read the book of Hosea, chapter 9, the threshing floor is sometimes a place where prostitution takes place. It's a workplace. It's, you know, it's a place where men are doing heavy labor and duties, and at the end of the day, sometimes prostitutes wander by. That's true. That can happen sometimes. Not in this chapter. But in verse 7 as well, Ruth does something that seems a little bit questionable. She undoes or unfurls the robe on his feet. He uncovers Boaz's feet. And it is a bit of a euphemism sometimes in Hebrew that if you're uncovering the feet, you're kind of uncovering the rest, right? You think of a man's robe, uncover the feet, and just keep unraveling the robes. But again, I'm arguing that's not what's happening here in chapter 3. I think the difficulty we have is it's our own sinfulness, our own brokenness that we read into this chapter. If it looks like it might be going in that direction, well, clearly, you know, it must have gone there. We've got 50 shades of gray lenses on, and we need to take them off. We need to not see the world that way. We, I think, need to watch more Jane Austen movies. Quite honestly, I think we do. You know, I think we need, to, we need to be able to recognize again that there really are, you know, Mr. Darcy's out there versus Mr. Wickham's. And there are really Colonel Brandon's out there. There are Boaz's out there. And some of the guys in the room are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but here's a little hint, gentlemen. Those of you who are married, go home today and suggest to your wife that you'd love to watch Pride and Prejudice with her. Trust me, the rewards will be mighty. As a man raising four daughters, I want them to have a view that there actually are Boazes in this world. There are worthy men. There are Colonel Brandons. There are Mr. Darcy's out there. So please stop lowering your standards and wait till you find the one that actually is living a righteous life. And so it is if you're raising boys or grandsons, you need to show them this as well. Because guess what? My daughters have to marry someone. So come on, let's start producing this, these Boazes of this next generation. What really happened on that threshing floor? Well, I'm going to argue that it's a beautiful scene. Let me, let me defend a few of the typical concerns. Verse 3. In verse 3, Naomi, who I don't know what Naomi's intention is. Maybe Naomi is playing a little bit funny intentions, but Ruth doesn't live into it. Naomi does say in verse 3, if you're looking with me in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, she says, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. And some commentators have said, it's kind of like, you know, put on your best clothing, you know, that, put on that dress and go down there. The reality is verse 3 is not saying she's dressed to kill. Verse 3 is saying she's clothed. She's got washed. She's got cleaned. She's a woman just going out. She's got a standard cloak on. As well, in verse 7, people say, well, clearly Boaz has been drinking. I mean, the guy falls asleep at his workplace. No, that's not what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says that he ate and drank at the end of a workday. It doesn't say how much he drank. It could have been anything he was drinking. But it says he ate and he drank, and his heart was merry. That doesn't mean he was loaded. It means that he was content. That's what the word means in the Hebrew. He was content. I mean, he's had a full workday. He looks over his work. He's been threshing grain. He says, look, wow, good day. 
He lays down at his grain heap, not because he's passing out at work, but because he's protecting his investment. He's, he's intending to sleep with his investment right there to protect it. He's just threshed barley all day. He's going to sleep on the threshing floor to protect it. And of course, in verse 7, when Ruth comes and uncovers his feet to awaken him, nothing illicit is happening in that uncovering of the feet. He doesn't wake up till midnight. He stays asleep. What's Ruth doing? Do you know what she's doing? She's literally uncovering his feet. No further. He's un- Why is she uncovering his feet? Because she knows that in doing so, if he's sleeping on the threshing floor, as the night gets cooler and cooler, it will eventually wake him up. It's like she's pulling his covers away just enough that he can feel the cold because she's got a conversation she wants to have with him and she needs him to wake up. So she gently uncovers his feet so as it gets colder and colder through the night, he will wake up. By the way, speaking of cold... As a Canadian moving down here, I'm learning things every week. Just because, I'm just, this is a public service warning, just because, you know, the weather outside is in mid-70s, and by the way, you're supposed to be impressed that I can do Fahrenheit now. Um, The fact that it's mid-70s does not mean that the pool is anywhere near that temperature. And so (laughs) jumping headlong into the pool without checking it could literally take 10 years off your life. I was wide awake at chapel last night. Wow. Like 50 cups of coffee at once. So don't do that. But that's the cold. The cold is what's going to wake up Boaz. And it does. Look what he calls her in verse 11. This is a key moment. He says in verse 11, he says, me and my fellow townsmen know that you are a, keyword, worthy woman. I mean, worthy woman. Do you, know, do you know what that phrase is the same as? It's the same as Proverbs 31. You know in Proverbs 31, that wonderful passage of what my Bible translates as an excellent wife? The end of Proverbs, it's the last moment of Proverbs, an excellent wife. This picture of a glorious woman. It's literally a worthy woman. It's the same phrase. And do you know what's really cool? Is if you look at a Bible arranged the way it was in the Jewish calendar... Do you know where they put the book of Ruth? Right after Proverbs. Ours comes, you know, between Judges and 1 Samuel, but if you read it in the original sort of Jewish order, Proverbs happens and then Ruth, which is cool because it means you finish reading Proverbs and you're reading the last chapter of Proverbs about this worthy woman, and then the book of Ruth starts and you have four chapters really laying out a narrative of a worthy woman. I mean, it's brilliant. Don't tear it out and move it around. I wouldn't suggest that. But just just know that that's one way to read it. Would he say this of her if she was acting the prostitute? I mean, would he say, you're a worthy woman? I mean, I know some guys are going to be like, worthy woman. But seriously, I mean, would he say, would Boaz say, worthy woman? Would he use that heightened view? No, he wouldn't. The evidence is that Ruth and Boaz are being honorable on the threshing floor. So what really did happen? Well, here's what happened. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. That's what's happening on the threshing floor. Ruth is asking Boaz to marry her. She's saying, I, I'm here, and, I, and I, want you to be, I want you to marry me. Look at verse 9. She says, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. Spread your wings over me. 
It's actually the language of the edges of a garment that would be worn around the shoulder. Those are the wings, right? The wings. Just like in chapter 2 where um, Boaz describes of what Yahweh, the Lord, has done for Ruth. When he says in chapter 2, verse 12, the Lord under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I mean, you've literally come and taken refuge under the Lord's robe. It's the language of protection. It's the language of marriage, though, because this is the kind of language used. Look at Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16 has this beautiful passage that describes Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his desire to marry Israel as a bride. And here the language of this garment This garment language in Ezekiel 16, verse 8. When I passed by you, the Lord is speaking. When I passed by you, Israel, again, and I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. It's the language of spreading a garment over to Mary. And so when Ruth says to him, spread your wings over me, she's saying, marry me, marry me. That's what I'm desiring. That's why I uncovered your feet. So you'd wake up in the middle of the night and we could have a little conversation and I could say, marry me. It's the language of protection. It's the language of marriage. But I don't know about you, does it seem a bit bold on Ruth's part? I mean, a bit bold. I mean, she's this Moabite foreigner widow. I mean, she's, she's gotten to know Boaz. She's seen this amazing, amazing love and hospitality he's offered. But I mean, is it, is it a bit of a reach now that it's like she jumps to that point? Like, you marry me? Well, I don't think it's that bold, actually. I mean, it, it's bold, but I don't think it's wrong-headed of her. Ruth finds her boldness because Ruth knows who she is, and she knows who Boaz is. And here's, I'll unpack what I mean by that. Ruth finds her boldness to ask Boaz to marry her because she knows who she is and she knows who he is. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Verse 9, the whole text moves around verse 9. Verse 9, Boaz in the dark says, who are you? And and Ruth has an answer. "I, I know who I am. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. I am Ruth, your servant. And, and it's, it's key language. Because by using the language of servant, she's putting herself in a position where she needs something. She's saying, I'm beneath you. I'm subservient. She's really saying, I'm in need. I'm in a pretty precarious position. I'm I'm just a servant. Look back at verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 3. Naomi, her mother-in-law, says to Ruth, she says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? In other words, Ruth's in a place of need. Ruth doesn't have rest. I mean, she's had amazing blessings poured on her, but she's still not at rest. She still cannot say, it is well with me. And she says to Boaz, I am your servant. In other words, I know who I am. I'm a woman in need. I'm a person in need. I know who I am. But guess what, Boaz? I also know who you are. Because what does verse 9 says? She says, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. I know my need... And I know who you are. You're my divinely appointed redeemer. You see, as we said last week, this redeemer language that Boaz is, it's, it's, it's a key technical word in the Hebrew. It's goel. 
And a goel is this person that was assigned within Israel to be a closely related relative. Yahweh, the Lord God, was providing each and every family to have these goels, these what sometimes gets translated as kinsman redeemer, sort of like close family member redeemers. And their job was if you ended up in trouble, the goel would come and rescue you. If you ended up selling a field and you couldn't afford to buy it back, you could go to your goel, your kinsman redeemer, and say, I, I'm in need. I need you to buy the field back because we can't eat. If you'd sold yourself into slavery or your wife or your child into slavery and you could not redeem them and buy them back, you would go to your goel and say, I need you to redeem and rescue. It was a role that they would play in the life of Israel. You see, Boaz, as we found out in chapter 2, is a close relative of Ruth's family. Ruth's dead husband is related to Boaz, and Boaz has this assigned role as Goel. Ruth knows this, and so she comes to Boaz and says, listen, I've got to know you. I know your character. I know your hospitality. I know who you are, and I know that you are my divinely appointed redeemer, and I'm in need, so guess what? I'm claiming that redemption today. I know who I am, I'm in need, and I know who you are, my assigned redeemer. So guess what? I'm going to find great boldness today, and I'm going to say, redeem me. That's where her boldness comes from. She knows her need, and she knows who Boaz is, and so she comes and she asks. And Boaz, he also knows who he is. I mean, look at verse 10. You know, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You've made this last kindness greater than the first in that you've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. What Boaz goes on to explain to her is that there is another redeemer, another relative that's more closely related, verse 12 says. Now, it's true that I'm a redeemer. I'm a goel for you, but there's another redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. I mean, Boaz gets it. And that whole story about that other redeemer, just wait for next week. I mean, it is, it just, every chapter keeps getting better. Next week is just Awesome. I keep getting you to come back each week, don't I? It's total manipulation, I know. But you have to come back next week for chapter four. But the point is, Boaz knows who he is. He says, I know I'm a redeemer, and I will do it. I will live into it. And I love in verse 14, it says, so she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone could recognize one another. And you think, oh, maybe that's like they're trying to hide something. No, he's trying to protect her reputation. Boaz is already acting like her husband. He's saying, listen, I'm going to get you to go early before anyone sees you to protect your reputation. Look at verse 15. I love it. Verse 15, it says, and he said, bring the garment, the cloak you're wearing, and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her, and then she went into the city. And some people have said, oh, this is like the cover story. You know, the barley, like she takes the barley home. What were you doing on the threshing floor? I was going to get some barley. It's not a cover story. It's an engagement presence. He's giving her a gift to say, I will truly redeem you. Yes, I'm saying yes to your proposition. And all of this, of course, points to our story with Jesus. As I said, the book of Ruth is an allegory. It's a telling of a story of a person coming to know their redeemer, Jesus. 
It begins in hardship, but by God's amazing grace, he brings us to that place where we meet our redeemer, we get to know who he is, we see his hospitality, but a day comes, friends, where we need to ask ourselves, am I committed? And will we ask our redeemer to do what he desires, which is to marry us? Will we ask Jesus to marry us? You know, it's not surprising that marriage is included in this book of Ruth because one way of reading the gospel, the whole story of the good news of God and Jesus is really one big wedding story. You can really read the whole Bible as a, as a, as a wedding story. Jewish weddings were very specific. There was very specific things you had to do as part of a Jewish wedding, getting engaged and then getting married. I mean, in our North American culture, we sort of you know, pride ourselves and we can sort of reinvent you know, the engagement and marriage period as much as we want and make it fit. But in the Jewish world, it was very specific. Let me just read you a couple of bullet points on what a Jewish wedding includes and hear it with the lenses of Scripture, the lenses of the gospel around it. And you tell me at the end whether you think the whole gospel is really a wedding story. So here's what would happen in a Jewish wedding. The bridegroom would send his best man ahead of him. And that best man's job was to go to the bride and prepare the way for the bridegroom. That's the language that was used. And then when the bridegroom was ready, he would leave his father's house and travel to where the bride lived. And then he would negotiate a purchase price for the bride so that she would be bought for a price. And then, not yet married, now engaged, the bride and the bridegroom would share a cup of wine. And these words would be spoken at the time that they shared in this one cup of wine. This cup is a new covenant between us. And then the bridegroom would return to his father's house with these words on his lips, behold, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I've made a place ready for you, I will come again to you and take you to where I am, that where I am in my father's house, you may be also. And so the bride waits and she prepares herself for marriage. She learns and studies of what it looks like to be married until the bridegroom returns, usually at night, so she doesn't know at what hour he's going to return, and there's a shout that announces his arrival, and then together the wedding party goes to his father's house, and they have a marriage supper to celebrate and consummate their marriage. Do you ever wonder why the church makes such a big deal about how important our marriages are? Because our marriages, as Ephesians 5 says, you know, this, this whole marriage thing, Paul says, is a mystery, and it points to Christ and his church. That our marriages become a small, imperfect, yet reflection of the marriage that God desires to have with his people. When people look at our marriages, they're seeing a living sacrament before them that says, remember, world, that this is how Jesus is towards his people. He wants to be married to you. And by the way, the reason faithfulness is so important in marriage is because it models to the world that Jesus will never, never leave his spouse. Always committed. And so imperfect as our marriages are, they are a big deal missionally in this world. And part of the imperfection means that you all need to take ringleaders with me. 
I'm taking ringleaders right now, not all of you, I'm talking the guys who are married. I'm taking ringleaders right now. Some of you don't even know what ringleaders is. It's husband school. Father Jeff, Dr. Ken Wilgus, they, they run this, this ringleaders, and, and you can't join now, we're halfway in, but we're gonna run it again, and you all gotta be there. And I'll tell you this, just a little secret here, guys who are married, no wife in this room will ever have a problem with you saying, oh, I gotta go out tonight, honey, to go to husband school. Like, she's never going to have a problem with one more night out for that. In fact, you might, you know, reap some serious rewards. Really? You're going to go to husband school? Trust me. Go to husband school. Why would Jesus be so bold? Why would, sorry, we be so bold? Why would we be so bold to ask Jesus to marry us? Well, just like Ruth, it's because we know who we are and we know who he is. We come to a place where we know our own need. I know my need. Who are you, Paul? I am Paul, a servant. I'm broken. I'm in need. I'm sinful. I've got death hanging over me. I am in serious need. I know who I am, and I know who you are, Jesus. You're my divinely appointed redeemer. You're the one that's been given to protect and rescue and save me, and so here's my boldness. I know who I am, and I know who you are, so please, Jesus, I want you to marry me. That's where the boldness comes from. The boldness comes because we know our need before Jesus and we know his love and grace. You think of that hymn, you know, the boldness that we're given in Jesus? Bold I approach the eternal throne and acclaim the crown through Christ mine own. And it's so good we sing it again. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ mine own. That's where boldness comes from. And you know what's amazing? Is that we come every week to this table. We come and we gather around. And this is a foretaste of the wedding feast to come. Do you ever think about that way? When you come up and receive, it's wedding food that you're receiving. It's marriage food. You're tasting the wedding feast because you're married to Jesus. One day you'll truly be together with him. And so friends, have you asked Jesus to marry you? If you haven't, you just need to ask. You say, Jesus, I know my need. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for rescuing me. Now marry me. Make me yours. That's all it takes. It can be done today. But many of us, maybe we are married to Jesus, but we forgot. We even thought about it that way for a long, long time. Will you come today and taste the wedding food again and be reminded of the very nature of your relationship with Jesus? Your bridegroom, you are the bride. My best friend in high school, Jay, died in a scuba diving accident, as I said a moment ago, in my junior year of high school. Completely unchurched, He started trying church in the 10th grade. And after a year of Jay trying out church, he told me a pagan that I still was, words that have haunted me to this day. I'll never forget. He said to me, I've gotten to know Jesus for the past year, Paul. I guess you could say we've been dating. Now, I want to get married. And he said those words to me just before he was baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And then later that year, he died in that same ocean. 
but he didn't die forever because he's married to Jesus. And now he's at the wedding feast waiting for you and me. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.